Uh, man, uh, welcome to everybody that's watching online. Thank you guys for joining us. I know that there are so many of you out there. I hopped on a few minutes ago. I saw Tracy, I saw uh, Kelly, and a bunch of other people hanging out online. Thank you for that. Today is the first day that we have some limited seating available in the room. So we've got some people in the room wearing masks and socially distanced. Can you guys scream just real loud? I don't know if you can hear them online, but we got a couple people here in the room, which is awesome, and uh, and we're still doing our 10:30 outdoor services as well. So uh, just moving forward, just so everybody knows, we can RSVP for 9 a.m. There's limited seats; it's very limited. Uh, there's 10:30 a.m., which is a, a little bit more space outdoors, um, or you can uh, engage online as well. But um, you know, one other thing that I wanted to say, and uh, I, I wanted to talk about this um, because I'm very excited, and I know some of you guys will be as also. Um, As the year goes on, as we continue to navigate and figure out the best way for us to care for each other, the best way for us to care for our neighbors, the best way for me to help lead and care for our church, we're trying to slowly and cautiously do things uh, that allow people the opportunity to engage and connect with each other and with God. Um, There's a lot of new ways that that happens now online via video. We had a team night this last week. We had about 27, 28 people in person, and we had about 15 people join team night online, which was awesome. All of our volunteers uh, just crushing it in the way that they showed up. And so there's all these new ways that we're trying to figure this out. And one of the things that we are going to um, try and implement, and uh, we're looking at September 27th, the last Sunday of the month, is uh, we are looking just during our 10.30 a.m. service, we are going to be uh, having our first elementary South Hills kids service and experience. So we're super excited for that. I know all these kids right here are real pumped. Uh, And so, um, you know, it's one of those things where we're putting a ton of time and effort and intentionality into how do we continue to keep kids socially distanced? How do we make it safe and and clean and as as, uh, safe as possible? And we're trying to learn a lot from what our local schools are doing as well. And elementary kids are actually just a little bit better at being able to be socially distanced. Uh, The younger they get, the more likely they are to just put everything in their mouth. Uh, So I tried to take my uh, sons to Santa Barbara this weekend, and my older son, my nine-year-old, was very cautious and listened very well, and and my five-year-old just licked every handrail he could find. And so uh, pray for him. Um, No, I'm just kidding. But uh, I'm super excited. So that's September 27th. It's only going to be during our 10.30 service. We're going to be having a South Hills Elementary experience. So we've got that to look forward to. Like Janina said, a ton of other things as well. Um, So with that being said, it was uh, early 1940. Um, Some of you were alive. Uh, Just kidding. Um, It was early 1940, and um, Peggy Brown was getting ready to go on a date. The young woman, um, she was, I mean, you can imagine the time frame, just the intentionality and just the, the classic dresses and, and all of these types of things. She was getting ready to go on a date. There was a, there was a young man that uh, she had known. It was someone from her community, from her neighborhood that had finally gotten up the guts to ask her out. He had liked her for a long time. Uh, and he finally got up the courage to ask her if she would go out on a date with him, and she said yes. And it, it wasn't like he just had to, like, push a button on a phone uh, to somebody that lived a couple cities away. This was somebody that his parents knew, and he knew her family. They grew up in the same town, and so there was all kinds of terror at being rejected because everybody would know that you were rejected. And, but he got up the courage, and he asked Peggy if she would go out with him, and and uh, so the day is coming, and in the morning, this young man is not feeling very well. 
uh, stomach's a little bit upset. Uh, it was not COVID. Uh, and um, it wasn't feeling very well. I was like, there's no way I'm missing out on this opportunity to go on this date. And, and it's probably about maybe 45 minutes before he's supposed to pick Peggy up on the date. And he just, his stomach, he just loses it. And he's like, there's no way I can go on this date. I will make a fool of myself. It will be gross. You know, the whole thing. Uh, but he was so concerned that she would be let down because she had been clearly, he knew she would have been getting ready and preparing herself. And, and chivalry was such an actual thing at this point in time that he tried to figure out how can I make sure that she still has a good night. And so he asked his roommate, says, Norman, will you go on this date for me? Will you go and pick up, her name is Peggy, she is beautiful, and I just need you to just take her to dinner. I will pay for everything. I just want to make sure that she is not let down or she doesn't feel like I just left her hanging. And Norman is kind of a quiet and introverted guy, but he agrees, and, and he goes and he picks up Peggy, and they go out to dinner, and they hit it off, and they have an incredible time. They actually ended up getting married about a year later, and that is how my grandparents met. Uh, there is something about stories that is just this crazy experience. There's something powerful about stories. There's something alive. This is something from 80 years ago, 90 years ago, and it's still somehow we feel that tension of what's going to happen, and he's sick, and, and she's been getting ready, and, and he asked his friend to go in his place. That is so sweet. And then his friend swooped in and married this woman that he had loved his whole life. But there's something powerful about stories. They are entrancing. They are beautiful. They draw us in. And, and whether you are a reader and you can think of your favorite novels that you have read, whether you love movies, and, and there are some movies that just have the most powerful storylines in them, maybe it's even your family history that you have heard about since you were a child. There's something beautiful about watching a story unfold. We want these characters to achieve their dreams. We want the people in these stories to overcome the obstacles. And oftentimes when we're watching a movie, when we're reading a book, when we are hearing the same family story that we have heard over and over and over again, we know what is coming. We know the obstacles and the challenges, and, and we know if they can just push through this one thing, if they can just make it just a little bit farther, then they will be okay. They will win. They will get the girl. They will win the battle. They will find the freedom they're looking for. We can see it from our perspective. But in those stories, they have no idea what's coming up. They have no idea how much longer it will be. They have no idea how much more painful it could get. Every step for the person that is in the story is full of unknown future. It's full of leaning into something. They have no, they have no control. They, it could be this way forever. And in some ways, we are living that reality now. There is a, a million unknown things that I don't know how long this is going to go for. I don't know how long this could potentially take for us to get through this season, this obstacle, this challenge. We want these characters to achieve the dreams and overcome the obstacles. But in all great stories, we feel the tension of when things could go either way. We know that if something doesn't kind of move in and shake up the comfort, their character won't enter into the story. We're surprised by the twists and turns that happen. If R2-D2 and C-3PO never ran away, Luke 
would have never met Obi-Wan Kenobi. He could have just bought two new droids, but he chased them across the desert. Uh, if three brothers hadn't all died within a month during World War II, the, the general would have never gone searching for Private Ryan. There was some challenge that came up in Toy Story. The toy that everyone thought was irreplaceable discovers an obnoxious spaceman in his spot on the bed. There are these challenges that show up in our stories. There are these obstacles. And when we watch movies, that's the reason we watch the movie is because what's going to happen? How are they going to overcome? How are they going to defeat? How are they going to break through? What's going to happen? This is, this is the reason that we watch movies. And I have seen movies before that never really felt like there was any danger or risk or tension. And they were boring. And I never want to watch them again. But the movies that keep me on the edge of my seat, because even if I've seen it a thousand times, it's like, oh, it's so close. Are they going to make it? Even though we realize that every great story is told in conflict, even though we realize that conflict is what causes transformation, which is what it says in the book of James, even though we recognize these things, we are, as humans, as individuals, we are unwilling to embrace the potential greatness of the story that we are in. Even though when we watch movies, we recognize that it's the conflict and the obstacles and the challenges that make these things beautiful. In our own lives, in real life, when we experience challenges and obstacles and conflict, we just throw our hands up in the air. We get frustrated. In other stories, we cheer people on until they overcome. But in our story, we tend to see conflict as an end to good things rather than the doorway needed to enter into goodness. We see the challenges and the obstacles and the disappointment and the pain. We just say, man, this is the worst. It's over now. And if we learn anything from stories, which we can learn so much from stories, which is why we're talking about this. It's that conflict and obstacles and challenges and pain, this is the doorway that we go to, through to be transformed to experience the beautiful, powerful, celebratory, the things that we cheer when the Death Star finally explodes, the, all of these things, we, our hearts melt when Buzz and Woody start working together, all of these things that would never happen without conflict. In our own lives, we get frustrated when we experience it, we think that God is just maybe unfair rather than a master storyteller. And the obstacles and the conflict and the challenges in the writing world, they call these the inciting incident. And some of you guys may have taken some of these classes in high school or in college. They call them the inciting incident. It, it's something that disrupts the comfort and it leaves people with a choice. Will I become fully alive to the story that God is writing in my life, or will I become the living dead? When we come up to a, an obstacle, a challenge, a tragedy, whatever it might be, we get to choose in that moment, do I want to become fully alive and pursue and lean in and power through this and experience what God has, or do I want to become the living dead? which kind of has this connotation of zombies. And if I know one thing from zombie movies and stories, it's that they just kind of tend to like bump into whatever and just kind of like bumble their way through life. 
never fully experiencing hope, transformation, beauty, power, love, grief. The reality is that we read and study all kinds of sources and we spend time researching our options in order to live in the right direction, but we rarely approach our own life with the mindset of a student eager to learn to gain insight and to find direction for the future. We rarely look back at our own experiences to learn what way should I go. We, look, we rarely look back at how we've responded in the past to learn and what, what's the way I should respond in this situation in the future. We push aside the one thing that can clarify not only how we got here, but also where God is leading us to go. It's hard for us to see this in our own story. So I want to look at one of the most epic stories in the scripture. The creation accounts, the creation of the heavens and the earth and, and everything that's in it and space and the stars and the moon, and, and it gets two chapters. The story of Joseph gets 13 chapters. It is an epic story. You could make, Hollywood could make 10 movies out of this thing. If we know anything, they love to make sequels. Uh, it, is, it is an epic story, and we are not going to read all 13 chapters today. Don't worry. But I want to jump around a little bit. We're going to start off in Genesis chapter 37. And I think as we look at this story, what I want us to see from a, from a bird's eye view is the obstacles and the challenges that Joseph had to face and ultimately what God was doing in and through these things, the way he responded to those obstacles and challenges, and we can begin to learn what would it look like for us to live that way now, to live that way in our lives. So Genesis 37, it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his, in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. And you guys may be familiar with this, uh, this beautiful multicolor, the technicolor dream coat. Uh, if you're a theater fan, there's this beautiful ornate robe that was given to Joseph. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, they said. We were, uh, or he said, we were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. It's like frustrating little brother, right? I mean, everybody that has a little sibling is like, yeah, I get it. This kid is crushing me. Uh, his brothers responded, so you think that you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think that you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because his dreams and the way that he talked about them. I mean, can you imagine your little brother? Some of you have little brothers, little sisters, and, and there is a, a frustrating reality about having a younger citizen, or citizen, <laughs> sibling, you may or may not be a citizen. Uh, when you're growing up, there's some, they follow you everywhere. They try and copy everything you do. It can be a frustrating thing. But, but then this young brother comes up and shares this dream, and it escalates. It goes on in the story. It says, so Joseph followed his brothers to Dothan, and he found them there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. Because remember, he's wearing a bright, obnoxious coat that they are all very envious of. They recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. This escalated quickly. 
uh, from a frustrating little brother to now all of his siblings making plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and we'll throw him into one of these cisterns, which is a pit in the ground. We can tell our father that a wild animal has eaten him and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, this thing escalates at a rapid pace. Joseph is given a dream by God. He shares it with his brothers. They hate him even more to the point where they're like, you know what? Let's just off this dude. Let's just get rid of him, and then we'll see if his dream comes true. Uh, you know, it, it, it's this, this crazy experience. One of the brothers has this kind of voice of reason, and he says, guys, look, we can't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And that's what they do. They sell their youngest brother into slavery. That was the kind way that they decided to handle this situation. It goes on over many, many chapters. And I just want to give you guys some bullet points because I want us to see someone who lived their life facing challenge after challenge after challenge. I want us to understand the implications of this. This person, this young man that was given a dream, not just on his, it's not just a cool idea that he had, but this is something that he felt like God gave him, that God was calling him to something. And even in the goodness and the rightness of that situation, faced nonstop challenges. So his brothers, they sell him into slavery. Ultimately, he uh, is moved off into Egypt from where he lived, uh, and he was bought by a man named Potiphar. He was an officer in Egypt, and Potiphar saw that Joseph was actually pretty smart and, and uh, was successful at a lot of things, and so Potiphar elevated Joseph as a slave to one of the head slaves in that time. In the scriptures, in, in uh, verse 6 of chapter 39, it says that the only thing that Joseph had to worry about is what kind of food he would eat that day. I mean, Joseph is living the dream. He went from being the youngest brother to sold into slavery to now having nothing to worry about except choosing what to eat for dinner. Then Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph, uh, continues to try and talk him into these family-style services. They really limit the story sometimes. Uh, Joseph finds himself in compromising situations repeatedly and continues to tell her no. And, and ultimately, he runs off one day because she has him trapped. And she rips off his beautiful cloak of many colors. And she, he runs out of the room. And, and she accuses him of doing all kinds of terrible things to her. And so Potiphar is furious, obviously. He thinks that this person that he trusted was doing these things. And so he throws Joseph in prison. He's imprisoned after he was previously elevated, after he was previously sold into slavery, after he was previously the favorite son. You see the ups and the downs and this crazy ride, and we're not even a third of the way through. So Joseph is imprisoned, but the prison warden in Egypt recognizes, man, this guy, he's really smart. And the prison warden starts to elevate Joseph, and he gives him more responsibilities and he starts to give him more freedoms, and, and, and Joseph kind of acts as this go-between between the prison warden and the other prisoners, and Joseph makes these close friends. He helps them. They actually have some dreams, and he is able to interpret their dreams for them. One is a baker, and one is a cupbearer for, uh, for Pharaoh, and he, and he helps them, interprets these dreams for them, and, and, and they swear, they say, if we ever get out of here, we will remember you, and we will put in a good word for you, my friend. And then the time came and they got out of there and they totally forgot about Joseph, this man that had helped them 
And he was forgotten for years. And again, I'm just giving cliff notes, but ultimately Pharaoh begins having these dreams and none of his wisest advisors or his spiritual leaders, nobody can interpret these dreams, tell him what they mean. And, and all of a sudden, and it literally says this in a scripture, the cupbearer realizes that he had made a grave mistake in forgetting Joseph. And he says, Pharaoh, I am so sorry. I was supposed to tell you about this a couple of years ago. There's a man that can interpret your dreams, but he's in prison. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph and Joseph interprets the dreams and he is so wise and Pharaoh is so impressed. And you guys would be shocked because this hasn't happened yet in the story, but Pharaoh elevates Joseph. He goes from the youngest brother who was loved by his father and hated by his brothers to being, they wanted to kill him, but they just sold him into slavery. And then he's elevated as a slave and then he's put in a jail and then he's elevated as a prisoner. And then he's forgotten about, and then he's brought out to interpret a dream and then he's elevated. And Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command. The only person with a higher power than Joseph in all of Egypt was Pharaoh. He is so impressed with this man. Joseph interprets these dreams that there's going to be seven years of plenty. Agriculturally, everything was going to be bountiful. And, and that after that, the, the, the dream was saying that there was going to be seven years of famine. And so what Joseph did is he saved so much of the agriculture and what was produced in that seven years of plenty that they had enough to get them through the years of famine, which nobody would have ever known to do except for Joseph because of how God had gifted him to be able to interpret these dreams. Well, you can imagine a few years into famine, all the people from all of the countries and the areas around Egypt heard that Egypt had a lot of food, that Egypt was crushing it. And so Joseph's brothers come to Egypt and they bow before the second in command. They have no idea who Joseph is. They bow down before Joseph. Sounds a little similar to the dream that Joseph had when he was 17 years old. And they beg for food. And Joseph, ultimately, he goes on to reveal who he really is, that he was their brother. And it says, they were terrified at his presence. <laughs> Which is like the understatement of a century, right? Like, hey, brother. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a crazy thing. I can't even imagine this insane moment where the brothers are begging this powerful Egyptian ruler for, please, will you just give us some food? We're really struck. It's been hard on us. We've had a really difficult go of it. Will you please? And then Joseph says, it is I, your brother Joseph. And they were terrified. Ultimately, he cares for them and he provides for them. And it's obviously there's, there's many, many chapters and it goes on beyond this. But as you look back at all of the years and all of the experiences and the people that have impacted your story and my story, as we look back at these moments, some of these things were impersonal. It was, um, it, it was natural disasters that impacted our stories. We, we experienced things that nobody could control. Some of these things were volitional. Some of these things were intentional choices people made to hurt us to cause us pain, to leave us, to betray us. You can find comfort and, and, and a sense of perspective in Joseph's story and the way that he continued moving forward and he continued stepping into what God called him to do at every single turn, whether it was, and it was almost always people actually causing problems for him, accusing him of things or trying to, to hurt him in different ways, but he continues moving forward. And there's an author 
um, that I love. His name is Dan Allender. Um, and he wrote this about um, the story of Joseph. He said, Joseph minimized neither his plight nor his suffering. And he was able to see both of those things in light of purposes greater than his own life. It is faith that allows us to suffer and struggle, yet also to rest in the confidence that a larger story is being told in and through our lives. He says that it's faith that allows us to suffer and struggle and acknowledge this is so hard. This is so unfair. I cannot believe it. My droids that I just bought ran off across the desert. I cannot believe it. This toy that doesn't even know he's a toy is in my spot. Joseph, I cannot believe it. I was given a dream by God, and here I am now in a pit being sold into slavery. It is faith that allows us to acknowledge this is not the way that it should be, yet I think I'm part of a bigger, more beautiful, more grand story than I could ever imagine. I don't think I'm the main character in this story. And so what does it look like for me to push through the conflict, to lean into the challenge, believing that this will actually transform me, that this is somehow the thing that is going to cause all of this to become beautiful again, the very thing that causes the pain and the frustration could be the thing that brings healing and hope. Nobody can believe that unless you have faith. And there is nobody that can promise that except for our God. It is the cornerstone of who our God is. He, over and over through scriptures, he says that I turn uh, beauty from ashes. I'll turn mourning into dancing. I will bring dead things and make them new again. This is the hallmark of who God is. And so when we are faced with these challenges, we have the opportunity to say, it is so hard and I hate everything about what is happening right now. And I think that there is a greater story being told. So what does it look like for me to do what I hope that Luke Skywalker would do? What does it look like for me to do what I hope that Tom Hanks' character will do in Saving Private Ryan? What does it look like for me to step in believing that there is something on the other side of this that I'm being invited into? By default, we naturally focus on what we see and what's tangible, but we forget there's a greater story being written, and we are a part of it. So there's three things, briefly. I don't really know. It's 9.41. So I've got another hour and a half. I'm just kidding. Um, there's three things uh, from Joseph's story that I think that we can learn from and apply to our own lives and to our own stories as we're trying to navigate. Because I, I know that every one of us, besides the worldwide realities, besides the national realities, besides the California realities of every, I mean, again, this week, fires, we've got pain, we have shootings of police officers last night um, or the, over the weekend. Um, it's tragedy and violence and anger. None of us want it to be this way. And sometimes it feels like, man, God has just given up on what it's supposed to be like. But these are the conflicts that we get to, to lean into. These are the challenges, the obstacles that we get to step into and say, no, I think there's a greater story being told. So what does it look like for me to begin to overcome? And so there's three things I want to look at. The first is that Joseph recognized God's goodness in the middle of the chaos. 
he was really intentional about acknowledging the goodness of God in the middle of the chaos. And we didn't get to read all the components of this, but Joseph actually ended up having two sons before these famines began. Before his family came, he had two sons. And he named his sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And in this time, names were not just, it wasn't like, what's the cool name this year? It was like the names meant something. And the names were a claim to what these people believed. And Manasseh, the name that Joseph gave his first son, meant God has made me forget all of my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Which, I mean, some of us are like, I'd like to forget my father's family. Uh, the first son is, God has made me forget all of my troubles. This, this, this son has caused me to, to move from being focused on one thing to recognizing that there is something else happening. There is good happening. And the second son's name, Ephraim, meant God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. Joseph, in the middle of the grief and the tension and the chaos and everything going the way that it was not supposed to, Joseph was able to celebrate God's goodness, recognize that God was good in the middle of all of the bad. He was able to point it out and see God is still here. God is still providing. I still get to experience beauty. I still get to, to listen to music. I still get to look at art. I still get to sit on the beach. I still get to eat delicious food. He got to celebrate God's goodness in the middle of the chaos. The second thing is that Joseph embraced God's perspective over his own. In Genesis 45, uh, Joseph is talking with his brothers after they realize that they really screwed up and they were begging their younger brother who they sold into slavery for scraps of food. But Joseph is talking to them and he says this, he says, don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. He is a much bigger man than I could ever be. He says, it was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. This crazy perspective that Joseph has is not his own, it is God's. He recognizes, I get that you're the one who threw me into a pit and you're the one who sold me into slavery and, and Potiphar's wife is the one that lied about me and he sent me into jail and then the other guys forgot about me. I, I get that all of those things were done by people, but God is the one that ultimately caused me to be in this place so that I could care for you now. And it says to preserve many survivors. The story goes on. This is how Israel ended up in Egypt. And their numbers grew so much that Egypt decided to put them into slavery. This is how that story begins because Joseph was able to, to help preserve all of Israel. Don't be upset. Don't be angry with yourselves. There's a different perspective of what's happening. A more modern take on this verse is a verse by another poet named Drake. And he says, I learned working with the negatives could make for better pictures. Come on, guys. There's this reality that when we look at the negative and the broken and the painful experiences, we can look at them all day and we can point fingers at all the people that were involved, including ourselves, because we show up in a lot of those stories. But if we start to recognize that there is something bigger going on, there, we start to zoom out and there's a bigger story being told that God is at work, that God is with us, that God is not distant or unaware, but he is 
intricately involved in the details, it changes so much. It's no longer you ruined my life. It's no longer you sold me into slavery. It is, isn't it awesome that God knew what was going to happen and I got to be here so that you could not die? That is bizarre and beautiful. And that is something worth striving for, the perspective of God's over our own. And then the third thing is that Joseph trusted God's power to work through and in spite of tragedy. God works through tragedy and in spite of tragedy. And you can take tragedy and you can turn it into pain. You can say chaos. You can say betrayal. You can say heartbreak. You can say sickness. You can say whatever you want. But the reality is, is that Joseph trusted God's power to work through and in spite of tragedy. In Genesis 50, verse 20, towards the end of the story, Joseph says this. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Joseph says, man, you intended to cause me pain. The world intended for this to hurt. You intended to betray me. You intended for this sickness to defeat me. You intended for these things, but ultimately that God was able to use what you did in spite of everything you tried to get me out of your life. Even though I was stuck in slavery for most of mine, God worked through that and he worked in spite of that to save many lives. This is what we hold on to. This is what we should hold on to. And if we don't hold on to this, then we will sit in our homes frustrated and angry and depressed and full of anxiety, wondering when this will be over. When will this year end? When will this election cycle be done? When will these health concerns be gone? When will my financial situation get better? When will he or she just be out of my life? If we don't have this perspective that God can work through the pain and in spite of the pain, if we don't have the perspective that God can work through the disappointment and in spite of the disappointment, that he can work through COVID and in spite of COVID, that he can work through a Democrat or in spite of a Republican, that he can work through my ex or in spite of my ex, if we don't get out of these these kind of shallow, small perspectives, then we will never fully be able to find the hope that God is offering us because the only hope is that God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. The hope is that God is able to bring life out of death, to bring the things that have faded away back to a fully beautiful picture. Joseph didn't pretend that it wasn't hard or that it didn't hurt. He recognized the conflict. He saw that it caused the opportunity and the transformation that allowed the dream that God had originally given him to actually come to fruition. Joseph had a dream. It wasn't just something that he chose, but it's one that God gave him. And as life continued to fall apart for him and people continued to cause unreasonable pain in his life, he continued to push forward because Joseph realized that his story helped to reveal a greater story than we could ever imagine. That the things, the little tiny things that I'm doing day in and day out to show up, to be better, to lean, to lead better, to love more, to care for others, these little things, they help reveal God's story to so many other people around us that we could never know. We couldn't even imagine. Joseph wouldn't allow his circumstances to write the story. He took hold 
and chose to become fully alive in the face of every challenge. This is the invitation that we have. Joseph's story, you know, it kind of wraps up here at the end of Genesis, but it's not the end of the story of Israel. There's a French term, and I'm not going to say the word right. I think we Americans generally pronounce it denouement. I'm sure it's something very French sounding uh, in its original translation, but it, it means not fully resolved, but it's a satisfying closure to this portion. And in your life and in my life, there are things that are clearly not fully resolved. But as we start to look back at our past, we start to look back at our relationships and our career changes and the challenges and the pain and the things that we've experienced, we can look back and we can see that things are not fully resolved, but I can see a satisfying closure to some of these challenges. I can see that God showed up in that situation. I can see that God came through in that time. And I can see where the community that God put around me was able to support me in that time. And it gives us a satisfying sense that as we look in the past, it gives us the courage and the wisdom and the guidance to be able to continue moving forward in a year that it feels like will never end. In a time that it feels like it is all hopeless. Everybody claims to have the answer, and I'm not sure any of them do. We get to lean in and turn to the great author of our lives, a story that we are not the main characters of, that California is not the main character of, that America is not the main character of, that there is a greater story being told about Jesus transforming lives and bringing dead things back to life. And we get to be a part of that, not only in our own journey, but bringing that to other people as well. Let's pray together. 